This podcast is very proudly brought to you by my new book, From Peasants Food to Superfoods. This book is based on cooking for the entire family and it guides cooks from all experiences on how to integrate healthy foods into everyday life. I know it's easy to stick to the same old things every week with a family to feed and a budget to stick to, but eating nutritious and delicious food every night is achievable and affordable. Learning how to use, prepare, and incorporate new and old ingredients into tasty and exciting food is what I love doing. So I have put this book together. It's over 300 pages. There's over 100 simple, nutritious recipes, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, desserts. Most of it's gluten-free, dairy-free. It's very gut-healing, very anti-inflammatory, and I hope that you will love it as much as I have, putting it together and (laughs) bringing it to life. So if you would like to check it out, learn more, or order it, jump online at www.mgherbs.com.au. And thanks for bringing us the podcast today. You're listening to Melissa Gearing, the Naked Naturopath. Mel is a qualified naturopath, herbalist, and nutritionist. She can't wait to share her thoughts on all things health and wellness with you. Welcome back to the Naked Naturopath, everybody. Today on the podcast, I have the pleasure and privilege of having Lisa Hendrickson Jack on for a second time. And if you haven't listened to the previous podcast that we did together, I want you to head on back and uh, find that one and listen to it because Lisa is a certified fertility awareness educator. Uh, She's also a holistic reproductive health practitioner, and she is the awesome author of a book that I have on my bedside table called The Fifth Vital Sign, which is all about mastering your cycles and optimizing your fertility. So thanks for coming on again, Lisa. Well, thanks for having me back. Oh, it's such a pleasure last time, and I've been wanting to find something juicy to kind of get our teeth <laughs> stuck into for a second conversation. And um, this one's all like, always, like we're going to talk all about um, uh, the pill, I guess, but how long it takes for women to fall pregnant uh, you know, depending on if you have been on the pill, if you haven't been on the pill and, um, just a bit of advance notice, because the thing that really got me, um, going with this is I have had a few women into the clinic over the last few months. Um, cause it's been five months since we last recorded just FYI, mm. my Skype tells me, and I was like five months, what? It's like half <laughs> wow. a year. Yeah. Um, so I've got these women coming into the clinic and they're like, I'm ready to have a baby. I'm going to go off the pill now. And it doesn't necessarily work like that, right? Well, I think, yeah, like it's important just to have a sense of what it really looks like for women. And um, I mean, what the research tells us, there's no evidence that I could find and there's no evidence in the research that the pill has like a long-term negative effect on fertility. Um, So as much as I'm sure we talked about the pill a little bit more, previous uh, um, call too. But as you know, as much as we could talk about the side effects of the pill, there's no evidence of a long-term negative effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the challenge is that the pill is associated with a temporary delay in the return of your normal fertility. So that's something that's quite clear in the research. And it's often minimized 
So for example, because, so the pill is a reversible type of contraception, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning that you take it and then eventually your body goes back to normal. And so when you look at the research, there is this delay. So on average, if a woman comes off of the pill or the patch or the ring, so the, the combined oral contraceptives that contain the synthetic estrogens and synthetic progestins, on average, it's taking her about twice as long to conceive compared to a woman who wasn't taking a hormonal method. Mm -hmm. So women who aren't using hormones on average, so your average healthy couple has about a 25% chance of conceiving per cycle. So on average, it would take about four cycles for a couple to, to start uh, to, to conceive with no health issues mm -hmm. um, when they're not using a hormonal method. But there was, you know, a study that basically had, you know, couples that were using condoms and then stopped using the condoms um, and then versus couples who were using birth control. And on average, it was taking them eight months. And so um, I think that it's the, the question of like, when would you conceive post pill? We'll never know. You know, we can't tell you in advance exactly how many months it's going to take you. Some women come off the pill and ovulate 14 days later and get pregnant right away. <laughs> um, so when we talk about an average, that that is exactly what it is. So some women are going to get pregnant a bit sooner and others take even longer than that. And so the challenge is you don't know how long it's going to take you. Um, and just for that, um, the way that it's talked about in the research is that even though there's this delay, because the majority of women eventually conceive, they kind of just not don't really address it. But uh, years of working with women and being a woman and, you know, knowing women, I think we all know, like, we spend our whole lives, especially our early 20s, typically avoiding pregnancy because mm -hmm. we've been taught that we could get pregnant like every day of our cycle. Yeah. <laughs> and so we assume and we're terrified of it because I am, I was also 20. <laughs> I was terrified of an unplanned pregnancy. There mm -hmm. was a period of my life where that would have just been absolutely catastrophic, right? And so you spend so much time and energy preventing pregnancy because you think that you're going to just immediately get pregnant the minute that your partner touches you. <laughs> so it's very alarming then to come off of the pill and have unprotected sex and then not get pregnant. Yes. So by the first month, you're kind of okay. You're like, okay, this is, <laughs> it's okay. I was on the pill for, you know, five years or 10 years or whatever. But by the second month, you're starting to get a little freaked out. Because again, a lifetime of really being terrified of getting pregnant at the drop of a dime. So the challenge is that um, when we don't know about this temporary delay and we don't plan for it, by the time you get to month six and month seven, you're not thinking that you're in a, you know, this is typical, there's a delay. You're thinking there's something wrong with you. You're at the fertility clinic. And by the time you hit that 12-month mark, which would actually be about the time that your cycles are starting to normalize and everything's starting to really get back to normal post-pill, mm -hmm. you're already probably two procedures, you know, in to your IVF journey. Yeah, wow. So four months for a normal conception without any history of pill use or oral contraception, eight months for is the average for pill use, and 12 months for a normal cycle to come along after pill use? Um, well, so when there's different studies that look at it in different ways. Um, there's one study that I quoted in the fifth vital sign where they looked at the, the duration of time that it took for the menstrual cycle to normalize. So they were looking at, you know, how long it takes to ovulate. They were looking at the length, the total length of the cycle. They were looking at the length of the luteal phase. So the second half of the cycle. Mm -hmm. And on average, it took about nine to 12 cycles 
before all the parameters normalized. So before the cycle length got back to, you know, the average is about 29 days. Um, the luteal phase, so the second half of the cycle has to be at least about 12 to 14 days. Like that's mm -hmm. the normal range. And so um, 9 to 12 cycles was the average length of time that it took. But 9 to 12 cycles isn't necessarily the same as 9 to 12 months yeah. <laughs> because some women don't get their first period back for, you know, a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And so 9 to 12 cycles is more like 12 to 18 months for the cycle to fully normalize. It doesn't mean it's going to take that long to get pregnant, but mm -hmm. I feel like we should have a, an understanding like, wait a minute, it can actually take a long time for my cycles just to be, get back to normal. Yeah. for them. Maybe that happy. means something, right? Totally. So like, is there any correlation between having that really healthy cycle and having a really healthy baby that we know of in the research? Um, well, I mean, I would say that there's there's a lot of compelling information in the research that would just, uh, the message basically is that the pill, I mean, in order for the pill to work, you know, when you're on the pill, you're, you're having sex, you're having, you're, you know, you're having unprotected sex in most cases and not getting pregnant. And that's mm -hmm. because the pill suppresses ovulation. It suppresses our normal hormone production. So when you're on the pill, you're not producing your normal levels of estrogen and progesterone. And so if you think about it that way, it's, it's shutting down your normal ovarian function. And so then it would make sense that it might take a little while for everything to get back to normal. Um, I think one of the most kind of <laughs> disturbing um, just papers that I came across. So there's uh, different research that looks at the ovarian reserve parameters and how the pill affects it. So when you're on the pill, um, the pill is known to reduce your ovarian reserve parameters, specifically ovarian volume mm -hmm. and anti-malarian hormone and also your follicle count, your antral follicle count. And so the pill shrinks the ovaries. The pill reduces the ovarian volume by about 50%, oh. 60% in some cases. So it, if you think about it, though, it makes sense because the pill is shutting down ovarian fu function. So in a sense, the ovaries are a bit dormant because they're not really doing what they're normally, their normal function is. And so the same study showed that after about six or seven months post-pill, that's when the ovarian reserve parameters really started bouncing back. Hormone production was improved. Mm. So uh, so when I say that, it's really scary, right? Like it shrinks the ovaries, but there's no evidence that it's permanent. Yeah. But this is all to say that we know that there's a period of suppressed or subfertility post-pill. It doesn't mean that pregnancy is not possible because, of course, it is possible. Some women do come off the pill and get pregnant right away. But on average, it takes longer. And so what that means for your average woman is if this is information that we can, if we know about it before, you know, we can incorporate that time into our plans. So when I talk about this delay, my, my suggestion and recommendation is that if you're on the pill and you've been on the pill for a while, then it, it's a good idea to think about coming off the pill if you're able to, you know, a, a minimum of, I would say, 12 to 18 months prior to conception um, because you don't know how long it's going to take you. You could get pregnant right away and it could take a bit longer. And at least if you give yourself this duration of time, then you have that. It's like insurance. You have it built in. Mm and you're giving your cycles and your body a chance to normalize. And so when you are ready to start trying to get pregnant, then your body has already gone through that transition phase. When you don't incorporate that transition phase, your body still has to go through it. It's just that when you're going through that transition phase of like a period of subfertility and you're also trying to conceive, it's very stressful. So it kind of sets you up for, mm -hmm. if, if it doesn't happen right away, it really sets you up 
um, to, to end up going through a lot of different procedures when really your body might just need a bit of time to, to transition post pill. Mm. There's so much, there's so much in there because I hear my clients kind of freaking out when I go through this stuff with them. And I'm like, look, as a naturopath, we've always asked for three months of preconception care, which seems like nothing when you're asking for 12 to 18 months. And one of the, right, (laughs) one of the biggest things with this is women kind of like, they freak out about getting pregnant early because, you know, they're waiting for their house to get built or they're, they're living with their parents at the moment until, um, you know, they do this particular, they save this a particular amount of money or it's all about the planning. It's all about uh, when they want to have this, this baby. And I, th- I think that's awesome that, you know, they're uh, working out their life to, to, to fit that. Um, but the key thing here, and my point is um, on your website, one of your biggest banners like when you go in to read some of your stuff is that when you learn your cycle when you use uh you know natural contraception in terms of uh cyclic um measurements you can use like 99 percent avoidance of pregnancy you can be pretty certain about that yeah, with the fertility awareness method, there are, you know, peer-reviewed research studies that have been published that show that when used correctly, so in these studies, these women were taught a specific method by trained educators. So they were doing a specific method correctly. And so that the efficacy is as high as 99.4% with correct use, of course. I think that the fear that women feel when they're coming off the pill is is based on the myths that we're taught about our our bodies, our fertility, um, the the myth that we're fertile every day. And essentially the idea is that if you're not on the pill, you're going to get pregnant. And often <laughs> I, I've spoken to so many women over the years who maybe they are ready to, to transition from the pill to a non-hormonal method. And so they're, you know, maybe they're planning to use fertility awareness. And when they bring that to their doctors, they're being told like, well, you better start taking folic acid because you're going to, you know, get pregnant right away. Mm. So being off the pill is kind of synonymous with being pregnant, it seems like. Mm. And a lot of women don't have that, first of all, the knowledge that you're not fertile every single day, that you can prevent pregnancy without hormones. And they may not have had the experience of having to negotiate barrier methods or having those types of conversations with partners over the years. Uh, So they may not have, they may not necessarily feel confident, right, that they could even successfully avoid pregnancy without Mm. the hormones. But, uh, what I just what I've seen, I've worked with so many women over the years, and when you're looking at the menstrual cycle, there is a transition period that takes place post pill. Um, your body does need some time to get back to normal, um, and the longer you've been on whatever your hormonal birth control method, the the more that kind of effect can be. And again, it it really depends because every woman is different. What I would say, kind of on top of that, is for women specifically who were put on the pill because they had cycle issues. So if you were put on the pill because you didn't know when your period was coming, I've actually spoken to a couple of women recently who never actually had a, a period wow. and they were put on the pill because they never had a period. What? So yeah, yeah. Uh. I, it, it, yeah. So that's um, like a different wow. case, right? Like kind of like a hypothalamic amenorrhea, like HA, but instead of it being addressed, they're just put on the pill instead of, so they never really had menarche. So if you, I mean, that's kind of extreme, but if you were put on the pill because you had issues with your cycle, because you're, you know, maybe your periods were so excruciatingly painful and all those types of things, or maybe like whatever the case was, but you were put on the pill as a 
to fix whatever the problem was mm-hmm. or to make your cycles quote unquote regular, you're at a greater risk of having a delay than yes. in your period returning. Okay. And I think that's what's really important as well. So because we don't know who's going to have an issue when they come off the pills because mm. some women, their periods come back right away. But if you know that you had an issue with your cycle regularity, then you are at a greater risk of having a delay. And what's interesting in the research studies specifically about like time to pregnancy and um, when they're looking at how long it's taking the cycle to normalize, they're often excluding women who have had previous cycle issues from those studies because they know the pill doesn't cure or fix those issues. So if you had those issues before, the pill basically makes it look like you don't have the issues. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, um, it just kind of puts a bandaid over it. And then when you come off the pill, the issues were never addressed. So they're still likely there. Yeah. So it's really important for women to know that. Cause imagine like you never had normal periods and then you come off the pill and then maybe it takes six months, a year for the period to come back if it mm-hmm. comes back. Yeah, definitely. And often like uh, when that does happen, there's not just that delay, but there can be some really nasty periods to start with as well, like just in my clinical experience. And I don't know if that is supported by research. Well, but maybe not if they're only looking at the um, healthy specimens (laughs) of women. (laughs) But, you know, like I see these women and and they've gone on the pill, say, because of endo, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of heaviness, there's clotting, all that kind of stuff. They come off the pill. Uh, they don't necessarily, like most of my women just uh, don't take their last lot of sugar pills and kind of um, do it that way. And maybe you can tell me what's the kind of, do we know how long that takes like for that pill to leave the system? Sometimes they'll have um, their next period will be okay. So I wonder if there's some residual controlling factors there. Would it last that long? Well, you mean kind of like how long it takes for the hormones to actually leave the body? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. Mm. I I can't say that I looked at research specifically in that area. And when I, the research that I have looked at is, is looking at kind of how long it takes the body to normalize. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of the actual hormones leaving the body, it's likely that the actual hormones are leaving the body a lot sooner than it would actually take your body to recover, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they're having this, so they're coming off, they're having their first period is similar to what it was on the pill. And then they get a bit of amenorrhea going on. So it kind of, uh, okay. yeah, like it's, almost, that's what you're asking about. Yeah. Like I why it, it looks there. normal at first and then yes. it kind of gets a little bit more yes, severe. And that's more shocking for them because they think, Oh, well, this is going to be okay. <laughs> you, well, I think it's helpful to think about what's happening hormonally. So if I kind of go back to that idea that, um, or just how the research shows the pill affects the ovaries, for example, Mm. and the ovaries literally are smaller, the ovarian volume is reduced. And um, I remember speaking to a surgeon at some point, you know, I will never, I'm not a surgeon, so I will never see, I probably will never see an actual ovary in front Mm -hmm. of me, right? Um, But I've heard surgeons talk about that. Like when women are on the pillow, their ovaries just shrivel up like little almonds or whatever. So I remember Mm -hmm. hearing something like that and wanting to look into the research to see if there was anything there. Um, And so it takes about six months before the ovaries kind of get back to normal, before that ovarian hormone production really ramps back up to what it's supposed to be. Mm. So I think a lot of women experience, and this is all part of the transition phase, they experience their periods or their cycles during that transition phase a little bit differently. And when their hormones finally ramp back up, 
then they start to experience something different. A lot of women start getting acne. They start noticing different changes and that's part of their hormones kind of ramping back up and everything normalizing. It takes time and that's why that nine to 12 cycles is real. Mm. So when I'm working with someone who's come off the pill, I've seen a number of different, and again, it's, it's, it's individual. Some women come off the pill and they, you know, they start ovulating right away and having their periods, but they don't see any cervical fluid for several months because it, for some women, it takes them longer for that, for their cervix to kind of heal and to start producing mucus again and start to respond to the estrogen. For other women, they start making mucus right away, but maybe they're seeing a lot of it every day or all the time and they're having a lot of discharge. Um, and then it takes that, them a little bit longer for everything to normalize. Some women don't get their period. Some women go for four to six months without ovulating. Mm. But the challenge is that when you when you get past like four to six months, it's it's not likely the pill that's preventing you from ovulating anymore it's likely something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's a point at which we can't say it's the pill anymore and we yeah. have to start asking, why are you not ovulating? Mm. That's where herbs come into. Like for me, that's herbs are amazing at regulating um, that cycle and just helping it do what, well, when I say regulating, we use a word called mod, like modulating. Uh, unlike the pill, it doesn't regulate <laughs> it. It modulates it. It helps your body find its way. Um, and herbs are really beautiful for, you know, kind of helping out that amenorrheic state and bringing in a bleed. Um, but what do you, like, what do you reckon about if they're going to come off the pill and you've got 12 to 18 months of, you know, planning and, and um, making your body have this beautiful cycle so that you can produce a beautiful baby is the hope. Um, what, where do we start preconception vitamins? And you mentioned folate before. Um, <laughs> but where do we start to kind of go down that road? Because some women can freak out about that for sure. If You know, they want to have a baby in two years. And I'm like, well, this is when we start some of this preconception stuff that can be a bit scary as well well yeah to think that um i think that it's helpful to think about you know the ideal scenario i often talk about that with my clients okay so let's talk about the ideal scenario when we all we have mm -hmm. all the time and we can do all the planning um i think it's helpful to recognize that wherever so for some women are listening and they are pregnant and they got pregnant two months off the pill and they're freaking out now because it's yeah. like oh my gosh you know, everything, I, my hormones were otherwise. So if your body is able to conceive and carry, it means that your body is capable of doing mm -hmm. that. I think that that's really important just yes. to, to point out. Yeah. Um, and we can just do what we can. So if you are listening and you're already pregnant, then you start from here and you do what you can now. Right. Um, so I, I always feel the need to say that. Because, oh, absolutely. Um, I still beat myself up about stuff that I could have done better with Callie. And, I, and my yeah. husband's like, are you joking? Like, what, what could you have done better? You did, you know, you did amazing. You did this, you did that. You did the best that you could. And absolutely, it was the best I could and it was the most that I knew at the time. And she's she's perfect. Like, so it's, you know, and I actually didn't do preconception vitamins because I was so sick. So mm, you just do what yeah. you can. Yeah, and that was something that really uh, stressed me out for a really long time and I had to just let that go. <laughs> yeah. Well, but when you're in a position to to take some time and when you're here, like when you're learning about these things before, because a lot of women, I mean, the, the, the traditional advice for women who are trying to conceive is basically go off the pill and start taking a prenatal. So I think the first thing just to, to know in general is that the pill is known to deplete 
uh, specific nutrients. Mm. And so in particular folate, and we know how important folate is for neural tube development. So ironic, right? That the pill depletes the very thing that we need Mm. the most. Well, I don't know if I would say the most, but it's extremely important. Yeah. Uh, so the pill depletes folate and other B vitamins, including vitamin B12 and vitamin B6. It's known to um, deplete even coenzyme Q10. It's known to deplete zinc and you know magnesium to some degree, selenium. It's known to impair thyroid function and have a, a negative impact on your gut flora. Mm-hmm. So it's just helpful then when you when you have that sense of okay, the pill is disrupting some of these specific nutrients that when you come off the pill, it would make sense then to take some time to really replenish, or even if you're still on the pill, to think about, you know, taking a good B-complex and mm-hmm. really, you know, taking, you know, finding a way to incorporate zinc-rich foods or doing a test to find out if you're, you know what I mean, or taking yeah. some, but just doing what you can to address the specific nutrients that the pill is known to deplete. <laughs> so that would be like step one. Those women are going to feel better for that, whether you're trying to conceive or not. Uh, my women feel better for supplementing that stuff because it has been depleted. And like your B vitamins, your CoQ10, that's all your energy stuff. So fatigue is huge. Magnesium, you know, so important for your nervous system and how you cope with stress and, um, you know, sleeping as well. Like it, having that stuff depleted makes you feel a bit crappy. <laughs> Well, absolutely. And I mean, there's an interesting link in the research between the pill and depression and anxiety. Mm. And because, so with the pill depletes folate, but for women who take folate, it kind it doesn't fully make up for it, but yeah. it kind of helps. So there's, it's interesting because there are research studies that do these short term studies on the pill and folate, and they'll let the participants take folate. And when they do that, the, the results just don't look that bad. With the long-term studies, you can't really fudge it. So long-term, when they do studies of women 10 years on the pill, it's clear that the folate is depleted. Um, But So it does help to take supplementation. But for example, B6, the pill depletes vitamin B6 at such a high rate that you would have to take, uh, I think I quote in the book, like Mm. 4,000% of the RDA, like 38 times the RDA. Like it's ridiculous compared to, you know, what happens when you're not on it. So some women then feel better when they're taking, say, vitamin B6, because B6 is known to disrupt your tryptophan metabolism, which is related to your serotonin, which affects your mood. And so there's this this connection between the pill, this very kind of direct link between the pill, and it kind of explains why a lot of women experience negative emotional effects. Yes. It's not the only reason, but, I mean, it's a pretty strong link in the research. Yeah. Magnesium is something that we use to treat anxiety, depression, insomnia as well. So, you know, a shortage of that can really affect your mood because mm-hmm. those B vitamins and that magnesium, they really are the building blocks of your nervous system and how, yeah, how you cope day to day with stressors in your life. Well, yeah. And I mean, the pill is known to, to deplete that. So I think for women coming off the pill, especially again, long-term use exacerbates these mm. issues. So knowing that the pill depletes zinc, I know um, I did an episode on my podcast a long time ago about copper toxicity. Mm. And I interviewed an expert who spoke about the copper IUD. But what she said was that women who come off the pill are often high in copper. So she called it excess copper, mm-hmm. not necessarily copper toxicity, but because it throws off that balance between zinc and copper because it depletes zinc so then the copper goes up right so it's like 
um, you think, oh my goodness, the copper IUD is associated with copper, you know, excess copper, but really the pill is also doing the same thing, just mm. in a different way. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So I think that just as a, a, a first step in the understanding, and also there's, you know, a lot of people don't want to take supplements because mm-hmm. you want to get everything that you can from food. And I think it's important to get as much as you possibly can from food. But it's helpful to know that when you are specifically like de- if, if you happen to be deficient in something, it's a bit different. It's a, and I'm sure that you support <laughs> your patients with that because when you have a deficiency, you target that a little bit differently Absolutely. than when you are, you know, nutrient replete and yeah. you're just doing maintenance with That's your diet. We call them supplements. They supplement a good diet. You know, they supplement um, the best diet that you can possibly do and get your hands on to, to and afford and, you know, what your lifestyle allows. But they're supplements. And I always think a supplement, uh, for the most part, should be a short-term fix. And, you know, you should mm-hmm. be working to get that food right. Well, and I mean, in addition to supplementing and kind of replenishing what's depleted on the pill, when you're in that preconception phase, planning ahead for pregnancy, it's really helpful to get into a bit of a different mindset. So the way that I describe it to my clients is that I use the analogy of a bank account. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in pregnancy, there's no woman on earth that goes into pregnancy and then comes out on the other side of pregnancy in a more nutrient replete state than she, (laughs) she started. So, you know, For me, in the book, I talk about how when I had my eldest son, when he was born, I literally looked down at him and I was like, where did you come from? He came out of my body. And for me, that was the the kind of literal, like when it all kind of clicked in my mind, it's like, wow, like everything I ate, everything that whatever nutrient source I had, that's what built my baby. Yeah, yeah. And so you want to think about going into pregnancy with a full bank account. Yes. That would be the analogy. And so pregnancy is a time when your nutrient, so both your macro and micronutrient requirements go up significantly. It's a time when we need more iron. It's a time when we need more B12. It's a time when we need more vitamin A. It's a time when we need more omega-3s. We need more of more iodine, more all of the nutrients we need more of, we need more vitamin D. Like we, we could just go on and on and on. <laughs> um, and at the basic level, you need more protein and you need more fat and you, you know what I mean? Cause yeah. you need more energy to build this baby. So I think um, one of the things just to consider are which foods can you incorporate that are going to provide the nutrients that you need to support your unborn child. Right. Um, and so I talk about liver a lot, um, not because I'm a crazy person who just likes liver, uh, but because um, liver is one of the natural sources of a lot of these nutrients and you don't have to eat a lot of it to benefit from uh, those micronutrients. So liver is the safest source of vitamin A because vitamin A from supplements is, is associated and known to produce teratogenic metabolites in women who are pregnant. So high supplementation of vitamin A in pregnancy is, is an absolute no-no. Mm. Um, liver is the safest way to to um, to get those vitamins in their natural form in a way that your body can absorb. Um, iron is, even if you're eating a lot of red meat, liver has, like beef liver, for example, has three times the level of iron compared to red meat. Um, and the amount of B12 and folate and choline, it's really just the, it's, a, it's nature's, multivitamin. And as I mentioned, you don't have to eat a lot of it to get the benefit. Yeah. When I wrote my last cookbook, I had, I've got a chapter on offal and you know, the book is very much about like, um, 
food is medicine and, and healing your gut with food. And so having a chapter for offer was just a must because it's one of the best places that we can get medicine, um, you know, in terms of vitamins and, and nutrients from our food and the amount of uh, coenzyme Q10 in liver as well it is going to feed back into the body. It's beautiful. Well, and, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I mean, coenzyme Q10, everyone's talking about it because okay. there's a lot of research that shows <laughs> that coenzyme Q10 is essential for egg development and mm. for sperm development mm. um, and, you know, prevents a lot of the oxidative DNA damage that makes for better quality in both areas. And if anyone has gone to the supplement store, <laughs> coenzyme Q10 supplements in the um, the most absorbable form, ubiquinol, they're <laughs> super expensive. Um, so I'm not saying anything about, you know, not taking supplements if you need supplements, but I've always been the one, my, the, the way my brain works, I've always wanted to know, like, you know, there was a time when you couldn't go to the store and buy CoQ10, mm. you know, 200 years ago, <laughs> there didn't exist. So what did people do? Where were they getting it? And the highest concentration of CoQ10 is in heart and liver. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Blood. You know, you want that liver a little bit bloody. <laughs> Get all that beautiful CoQ10. And it's like, you know, wow. so many people screw their nose up, but then they see the recipes and they go, oh, like that doesn't sound too bad. It's all about how you do it. Um, you know, you don't need to just be frying up a big chunk of liver and then digging into it like a steak. Like, <laughs> you No, absolutely not. So for me, it. I mean, I grew up eating liver, so it's not – for me, cooking liver and eating it just yeah, so isn't a big deal. But for yeah. – I would say um, – a good percentage, like at least, you know, 30 to 40% of my clients are just like, absolutely not. Like they yeah. didn't grow up eating liver. They, and often what I find is, uh, you know, you, you learn about liver, you learn about the benefits, you go buy some, and then you like make some sort of spaghetti dish or some sort of ground beef dish, but you add like 90% yeah. liver or and 10% yeah, so you go kind of yeah. overboard. My suggestion for somebody who really wants to incorporate it is to start off really small. Mm. You know, don't overdo it. Don't be a hero. Don't <laughs> just no. Um, if you don't, if liver isn't a thing for you, but but you're wanting to incorporate it, if you're making a ground meat dish, so whatever type of liver, beef, chicken, turkey, you know, duck, whatever, but whatever <laughs> um, type of ground meat dish that you're making, I would suggest like a fifth liver to like four fifths mm -hmm. meat. Mm -hmm. So start small, just add a little bit because if you're not used to the flavor, it definitely does add flavor, season it well and all that. Um, but don't go too crazy because as I mentioned, you know, liver, I, what I, one of the things that I'll share with my clients is like, it's not about, you know, buying a huge pound of liver and like eating it all that day. It's more <laughs> about, cause that's just not going to work. Um, it's more about finding a way to incorporate it regularly. Mm -hmm. You'll get more of a benefit from incorporating some liver into your diet on a weekly or twice week, like every other week or something like that. You'll get more benefit of adding it in on a regular basis than you will like trying to go hard <laughs> once. Yeah. It's the same premise as a supplement. Like, you know, we don't want to be eating the whole multivitamin thing in one day. You take one of those tiny little bad boys each day. So if you can get that same premise into your head about food, you need it, yeah, periodically. You need that little bit of – and liver is so nutrient-dense. You don't need to have a lot of it either. So you don't need to, like, make yourself sick and never have it again. It doesn't – you know, it's not going to do its magic that way. 
Well, and I have a table in the fifth vital sign where I break down, like if you took a hundred grams of kale, carrots, chicken, red meat, and beef liver, because I wanted to kind of illustrate. I'm, I'm always a very visual teacher. So any, all of my clients know, like I always pull up images and diagrams and all that kind of stuff, but to show what the difference is so that you can see with your own eyes. So for example, folate, if you were to eat like a hundred grams of kale versus a hundred grams of beef liver, you're getting like 20 times <laughs> the concentration of folate. Um, and you're also getting choline at a really high level, um, that you, that, is really unmatched. There's mm. no other food that would have as high of high density of nutrition per pound, you could say, or, you know, um, and similarly, even vitamin B12, even if you eat red meat, it's, um, the, it's orders of magnitude higher. Mm. Um, so it's just a different, in the, in what I'm looking at right now, it's like, I should have done the math before, but I think it's like <laughs> 35 times yeah. <laughs> the level or something like that. So um, even for, even for regular, you know, women who are eating meat all the time and things like that, um, you can still significantly increase the nutrient density of your meals just by adding a little bit of liver from like on a regular basis. Yeah, so good. Awful all the way. Awful's not awful. Yes. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the other organ meat too. Yeah. Like, um, kidneys, high in selenium, which is key for thyroid function. And, um, obviously we talked about heart being high in coenzyme mm. Q10. And, um, and if you have a butcher who can just grind it up for you, then you don't, it's not as hard to get your head around, Yeah, <laughs> but it's not everyone has that. Um, but it's not just all mm. about the liver. Of course we talk a lot about the liver. Um, also if you're able to get, if you have a good source of fish and seafood, so, yes. Um, fish in particular is important for the omega-3s. Omega-3s are really important for reducing inflammation, egg quality, sperm quality, and everything that we're talking about is also important for your partner. Um, yes. So I really want liver. to get into that a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, liver, vitamin A, we're talking about all these nutrients, folate, choline, B12, um, iron, you know, all of these nutrients. And so uh, it's helpful to know that in animal studies, I think it's really interesting what we can learn from animal studies. So we can appreciate that it's not a direct parallel, but in animal studies, if the researchers, uh, if they, if they provide male animals with a vitamin A deficient diet, those animals become sterile. They, they no longer produce sperm and they no longer produce significant um, amounts of testosterone. So okay. vitamin A in the research is like on and off switch for sperm production. Wow which is a pretty big deal. And then what happens in female animals is that when they um, provide the, it's, it's, it's super unethical. Like if you look at the research, yeah, right? so they're like breeding these animals and then like, but the female animals, they're, they call it fetal reabsorption in animals, but they basically have miscarriages or stillbirths mm. depending on how deficient they are. Um, and then depending on the level of deficiency, they may have, um, uh, you know, the, like, for instance, when they do these studies in like rats and things like that, they're, they'll be born like blind and stuff like that. Vitamin A is crucial. Mm. So all of the things that we're talking about are equally important for men to do because their contribution, even though we're the ones that could carry the babies to term, their contribution plays a significant role in the health of your baby. Yeah, absolutely. I have, um, you know, like I sell natal vitamins because like, that's what, I, you know, you, like you have your clients in the clinic and I give them some herbs and natal vitamins, go through some other stuff, like whatever. But I've, um, I've always kept women's natal vitamins and 
I, for a really long time, when I started doing a lot of fertility work, I kept um, the men's natal vitamins and they just kept going out of date. It was like I couldn't even give them away. The men just wouldn't take them. And I, like, I, I struggled to get my head around this that, you know, they're 50% of that conception. Like, they're, you know, they're half the game player there when you conceive and they just, um, I don't know, undervalued or maybe. Uh, it's like a it's a societal thing I'm not sure but the yeah the guys just don't seem to jump on board uh, like us women do when we're in that preconception phase well I definitely think it's a societal thing I think that we I mean because we have the physical evidence of pregnancy we're the ones that carry we obviously you know it, it just for whatever reason it's just really looked at as if it's us and there's an epidemic there's a huge global issue with sperm quality um, you know over the past 60 70 years in the research the the average sperm count you know, concentration, morphology, all of the different parameters uh, for sperm have been declining. Mm. And um, one study that I was looking at showed that the average man in the 1940s had an, you know, sperm concentration of, an average sperm concentration of over 100 million. Um, I think it was like 134 million or something like that. And your average man today has a sperm concentration of maybe like 50 million. Wow. And so instead of, you know, instead of looking at that and saying, okay, some of these men are now subfertile, that they've just lowered the, the parameter and lowered the, the numbers. <laughs> and I think um, when you look at the research around it, I mean, when it comes to, to men and sperm, even if a man has quite poor parameters, so even if his count is quite low and even if the quality is quite low – it's often still possible, right? Like it's possible. Mm. It might take many, many more months to conceive because then you're, you're, if you have an issue with sperm quality, your percentage chance of conception per cycle is lower. So it might, instead of taking an average of four months, it could take a year, but it, it's, it's not impossible. And so I feel that when I, as, as going through the research, I feel like there's this hesitancy to call a man sterile or subfertile because mm. there's always this possibility. And then um, the way that our culture, the way that science and medicine has dealt with male fertility issues is through the use of IUI and IVF through the use of ICSI when they put the sperm directly into the egg. So even if you have a man with very, very poor sperm parameters, very, very low count that basically couldn't conceive naturally, they just bypass all that. So mm. it's like everything possible to just not talk about. It. There's an elephant in the room, but we're just going to not talk about it. Yeah, totally. Like it's such a bizarre thing in my head. Like, I've, you know, like I've got these women in front of me who are just willing to do anything I ask them that, you know, like I could be like, look, you need to live on tomatoes for three months only tomatoes. And water. <laughs> They'll and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it do doesn't matter what it is. And a lot of them, I know, you know, there's probably half of my women are like awful. No, I can't do that. And then when I explain how important it is, they're like, okay, I'm going to try it. Like, you know, and I even have one woman who just puts a little bit in her smoothie, uh, cooks it up and just keeps it in the fridge and puts it in her smoothie every other day. So like they're willing to do this stuff. And then, you know, we've got our guys on the other side who won't even take two damn pills in the morning. 
<laughs> well, see, I find that it, it kind of depends. I haven't completely lost faith in mankind. Um, <laughs> actually, the work that I do with women um, has always kind of maintained and restored my faith. So what I mean by that is, I mean, I'm working with women who are actively charting their cycles, who are often opting to use fertility awareness for birth control, so not a non-hormonal method. And in order to use a non-hormonal method, <laughs> you have to get your partner to buy in because that's going to require your partner to modify his behavior. So whether he is using a condom sometimes or withdrawing sometimes or whether you're using a diaphragm sometimes, you your partner has to cooperate if you're using a non-hormonal method. So um, what I found is that, I mean, in general, and you've probably found this too, sometimes testing is very helpful. <laughs> um, not necessarily because it changes the course of action, but because when you see something on a piece of paper, it makes it real. And often that is what sparks somebody into action. <laughs> so if you're looking at the sperm parameters and you break that down to a couple, like you break it down to, you know, the woman and the man and you talk about it and you talk about the specific, you know, what we can do to improve it and those types of things. Not every man is going to jump on board, but a lot of men will do, they will come around. So for instance, cause it's, it's so ironic, right? Cause I found the same thing. Women are willing to do everything. They're, they cut out every food they love. They're taking a hundred supplements or like doing everything. They're standing on their head, whatever. Mm. Um, and then their partner won't even like cut down on the beers. <laughs> yeah. um, but once you get like, once you have a conversation and you're talking about it in a very specific way, if you've had testing done, you know what the parameters are, you know um, what you need to do to improve it. What I, what I all, uh, often tell my clients is that, you know, you can't expect your partner to do every single possible thing under the sun, but typically there are a few things a few important things that you know he'll be willing to do I'm not sure if you found that but no okay. <laughs> and you know what I don't even think like I don't blame them I don't think it's like a I'm not gonna do this it's like uh we have sex fine and that's how we make a baby and so it's all good I just think it's you know a simple view than what we have as women and you're right maybe if, if you know for a male mind to have those parameters it does really help with this is what is coming back in the results this is what I can do to improve that number and then it becomes like that logical kind of link um but we're just different creatures aren't we like at the end of the day well I, I maybe so maybe I just I don't know because my experience has been that, yeah, there's definitely some men that are not willing to do anything. Um, but I think, I suppose what I would say, what I think is helpful is information. The way men's minds work, um, this is just a broad generalization, <laughs> um, which may or may not be true <laughs> for your partner. <laughs> but information is very helpful. So when I'm working with a client, I'm bringing them the information and I'm sharing the research. So for example, in, in the, um, in chapter 17, the preparing for pregnancy chapter, I have, um, listed specifically some of the lifestyle issues that, um, that are known to interfere with sperm production. And so it's not, it, it's, it's different from being like, ah, eh, maybe you shouldn't drink a little to being like, alcohol is known to reduce these sperm parameters. Smoking is known to reduce morphology, to, to increase, you know, sperm DNA damage. 
so like when you have conversations in that specific vein and you're going through the the sperm analysis in a very specific way and you're comparing his results to what would be optimal and talking about the percent chance of conceiving, especially for a couple who's been trying to conceive for a long time and they've kind of been through the ringer together, I find that um, maybe I'm just being too optimistic, but I do find that you know, men, they love their partners. They want their partners to be happy. And so at some point, you know, most men will come around at least to some degree, necessarily in all areas. And then if they don't come around, you just throw that liver in the meat dishes because you're probably cooking. Yeah, right. right? So if you're eating those same foods, <laughs> yeah, at least he's getting some of that nutrition <laughs> for sure. Because who's cooking the meals? So, you know, <laughs> yes, definitely. And you know what? It's probably a little bit different. So, you you know, you're, um, the way that you speak about it is very much like you've got both of those partners on board. And I guess when someone comes into my clinic, um, they, you know, they make that appointment for themselves and they come on in and they tend to be just them. I don't often see couples. And I know that some of my colleagues. I don't, I don't often see couples. But, I mean, in the work that I, like the couple, that the man always has to be involved. Like mm-hmm. when I'm working with someone, I'm not talking to him directly, but I'm kind of talking to him through his yeah. partner. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know some of my naturopathic colleagues, they only see couples for fertility now. So there's like a, you must bring, like both of you must come. Um, you know, both of you must be on board. And I had a colleague recently who was very much like, I can't help you if he won't come on board. Well, I think that that should be the the move like for fertility challenges that needs to be the movement. So for me, I don't require the, the, the male party to participate, but it could just be because of the nature of what I do. Cause I'm talking about the cycle. We're talking yeah. about timing sex. Like the partner is involved mm. indirectly in all of it. Because when I'm talking about, you know, strategies to optimize conception and, you know, timing and et cetera, and all of these things. And of course we talk about sperm and how c- crucial that is because one of the things that I have found in my practice is that, you know, the women who come to my practice and they've been trying to conceive for a really long time and it hasn't been working, you know, sometimes they do have issues with their cycle that are kind of apparent and glaring that we work on. Sometimes there's their cycles are actually okay. <laughs> sometimes their cycles are, are okay. And mm-hmm. But what seems to be across the board is that in couples who've been trying to conceive for a long time, I, I rarely, I, I've never seen an optimal semen analysis yeah like so there so it's i could see why um various practitioners would want to move towards having both partners attend but in my practice i found that just by speaking to my my client the woman and we i you know i work with my clients over a period of time so we really get to know each other and Mm -hmm. so it's you know typically a couple of months that we're together so a lot of conversations are had between her and her partner. Yes. <laughs> Even though I'm not there, I'm there. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. So, um, and so I guess I just want to, for the women who are listening, who are just like, oh man, you know, my, my husband isn't you know participating or he's not coming on board. Uh, it really just depends on how you talk to him. And I found that, like I said, I just believe like, and what I've seen, they love you and they want you to be happy. Mm-hmm. If there's something that they can do, maybe they're going to, maybe it takes a little bit of time to convince them or whatever the case, but you just have to find the way that you could try to reach them. Mm-hmm. Some of my clients will have, so like this episode, have them listen to this episode, right? See if they're, 
willing to listen to the podcast, um, buy a book, you know, see if they're willing to even read a chapter of a book that talks about it or look something that has research evidence for that kind of the part of the brain that's wants the, the, the concrete yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right. Cold but like, facts. I, yeah, I wouldn't give up on it. Cause I just, it has not been my experience that most men are just a hundred percent. No, I will not do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's pretty rare that only one part of that partnership wants the baby, especially like you said, in that long term struggle, if they have been having that. Yeah. They're looking for help. Looking yeah. For and help. I mean, the, the challenge, I think probably the bigger challenge, like, cause I, this is what my, been, this has been my experience as well, is that even when the male partner's sperm is less than optimal, he's still being told that everything's fine. Yeah. And so like when, like I, I can't, that's my new, like the new word that I hate the most is fine <laughs> because everything's fine. The sperm is fine. I was told the sperm is fine. So then, you know, it's like, okay, so do you have the sperm analysis? Okay, let's look at it together. Yeah. Let's talk about the difference between the basic bare minimum World Health Organization um, results and what would be optimal, what shows in the research, what the levels are. And when you have that conversation and then they're kind of like, oh, wow. I'll show them pictures, like this is what normal sperm looks like, this is what abnormal sperm looks like, you know, your partner's morphology was 2%, that means two out of every hundred are normal, two of them look like this, 98 look like this, mm. then all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, and then when they have, so I think maybe that's part of the reason why the partners come on board, because then they start to get it, I'm, yeah. like I said, very visual, I'm always showing people mm. pictures and diagrams, so that they can understand and then that, when you get it, then it, it, you know, it's a lot different than going to a clinic and being told everything's fine. Yes, definitely. Oh, oh so much, isn't it? It is. So, it's a lot to take in. Yeah. I went on your website again, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> I love stalking you. And then I just periodically go on and get like your cool downloads because I love them. And that's something that um, I use as a resource in my clinic. So your sperm photos, you're my sperm photos. You know, I'm like, go to this website, you know, download the free chapter, go get this. Like I, anyway, I went on earlier today and I got, I put my email in twice again to get two new things you got on there. So if you're listening to this cast, oh, and I read that you've been on over 70 different podcasts, so people can really get listening to you if they love your voice, which I do. That's um, so awesome because, you know, I actually updated the press page like two days ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so oh, you really were on my website. Yeah. Oh, I'm, um, I'm <laughs> absolute, I'm premium stalkerville. Um, <laughs> I love it. And because one of the things that, uh, one of your sentences really touched my heart actually this morning because it just says, because don't you deserve to know about your body? And I just thought, yeah, yeah, we do. We do deserve to know more about our body. We don't know enough. And like you said, we've been put into that um, really fear-based kind of teaching on fertility. And, um, yeah, I just love your website. And I just wanted to give it like a shout-out because if anyone's listening and they want more, which when you're in a position of changing such a significant part of your life you just want information that you can rely on so i really love your website for that and i just wanted to yeah thanks thanks for putting that well, together thank you so much it's awesome well 
for the for anyone listening, all of the the downloads and stuff that she's talking about, it's fertilityfriday.com slash freebies. <laughs> <laughs> and I just put them all there. <laughs> well, I just go onto the homepage and I'm like, yes, yes. And that just leads me down this rabbit warren of awesome stuff, which I love. Love it. And um, you've got the podcast as well, obviously, Fertility Fridays. Mm-hmm. It's still weekly? Yeah, we're up to – it's still weekly, up to, I think, 280-something. Yeah, I was going to say 300. Now. You're almost reaching 300. Yeah, so it's on the, it's on the schedule. So great. I refer your I refer a lot of my clients to your MTHFR podcast that you did with um the Doctor Lady. Yes. Doctor yeah. Lady Diane. Yeah, she's so good. She she um I think she mentored with uh Doctor Ben Lynch. I remember yeah. her telling me that because she just knows her stuff. It was yeah. really great. Podcast. She's really and really down to earth. Like MTHFR can be quite overwhelming for people. I just found it's mm-hmm. so easy to understand. It's really down to earth. People can just listen to it and then they can kind of come back into the clinic with me and be like, oh, I was just wondering about this particular thing. It's awesome. So you can, yeah, go back through the Fertility Friday podcast and listen in to different stuff as well. Can't thank you enough for your time today. You just, I was feeling a bit, actually a bit low. You know, I haven't been that well today. And then having recorded the podcast with you just really lights me up again. It's nice. Aww. <laughs> it gets me excited. Well, thank you so much for that <laughs> and for having me back on. It's just such a pleasure to talk to you. And, um, well, it's obvious that we're both very passionate about this issue. And at the end of the day, for me, it's what you said. We deserve to know about our bodies. And we deserve to, For it's like that informed, I always talk about informed consent and having that knowledge because it gives you choices that you wouldn't otherwise have. If you don't know that the mm. pill can have an imp- impact on your, your, you know, just the time it could take you to get pregnant, then that's t- like time. You can't ever get time back. Mm. Um, so these are just the choices, the information that we need so that we can make the choices that we deserve to be able to make and do whatever is best for us. Right. So Absolutely. thank you for letting me come back. No, thank you. And we'll talk to you again soon. I'm sure. If you like what we do here at The Naked Naturopath, then be sure to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To learn more about Mel and MG Herbs, jump onto mgherbs.com, follow us on Facebook at MG Herbs Australia and Instagram at MG Herbs Official. Please keep in mind that all advice and opinions on The Naked Naturopath are not individualized. To get the right advice for you, be sure to make a booking with Mel or your health professional. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.